welcome back to One Step, where we talk about the small steps in the process of finding our truth. We explore life's deepest questions around family, careers, relationships, money, and creativity, while also celebrating the small victories. We're breaking down the wall between who we think we should be and who we really are. This is a reminder to ourselves that change doesn't happen overnight. It happens one step at a time. I'm your host, Ingrid Nilsson, and I've spent the last decade sharing my life and personal growth on the internet, and I know how hard it can be to open up and share personal moments with the public. Today, I'm talking to Stephanie Dandler, who is the best-selling author of Sweet Bitter and the creator and executive producer of the Sweet Bitter series on Stars. As some of you may know, Stephanie is one of my favorite writers, and I had the pleasure of reading her beautiful memoir, Stray, which comes out on May 19th. In Stray, Stephanie highlights the nuanced and strained family dynamics she grew up with, the damage she inherited, and how she has broken patterns of the past to build her future. While reading Stray, I kept thinking about how much courage it took to write this book. There are moments that feel so incredibly palpable, and Stephanie just has this wonderful way of vividly articulating feelings many of us have, but don't have the words for. I'm so excited to have her here today and to dive in more. Here she is, Stephanie Dandler. Hi, Stephanie. Thank you so much for being here today. Thank you so much for having me. This is very exciting. It is. Okay, so first step for transparency, how would you describe your relationship with money growing up? Awful. Um, My mom was a single mother and had a small salary and we never had enough money. Money was something that came from grandparents or my aunt or her boyfriends, but we never had any of our own. And there was a lot of anxiety about spending, a lot of anxiety about what we were able to do and what we weren't able to do. Things like going out to eat and going on vacation were extremely rare for us. And I did not realize how fully that had infiltrated until many, many years later. How would you describe your relationship with money now? Still awful. I have made money and spent lots of money. I have seen it come and go so many times in my life. There's never really been a safety around it or a safety net. And even when I had none, even when I had no savings account and a checking account that zeroed out every month, I know that I still had a beautiful, rich, full life, but the fear of going back there, I mean, this, it's interesting that you started this podcast talking about money because no one ever talks about it. And yet it is like the subject of my anxiety 24 hours a day, even in my sleep. And that's one of the reasons why I wanted to start this podcast with talking about money with every single guest because everybody has their own relationship to it. And I feel exactly the same way. I, you know, grew up in a similar way when you talked about in Stray going to Disneyland and how it was such a big deal. 
I related to that so deeply. And just the anxiety and fear around money and going back to the circumstances that I grew up with financially is something that takes up so much time in my life and I dream about it and then I wake up and I'm thinking about it. And so I think it's just really interesting to have that context around people because it's something that you just never really get to hear. Well, I try actually with other writers, especially not in such a public setting, but I really try to be transparent about money and making a living as a writer and needing to have a day job, which in my case is writing scripts. And if do you have kids? No, I don't. It gets so much worse. <laughs> you think <laughs> you think at a certain point, well, I'll be fine. If this all disappears tomorrow, if my small savings disappears tomorrow, I'll be okay. If you're just taking care of yourself. And I used to take a lot more risks before I had children. And now I mean when I got pregnant, I'm very pregnant right now. You can't see that at home with my second child and she was unplanned and I felt completely unprepared. It all manifested in money anxiety. Every other anxiety about the world, about being a mother to a girl, it all came out just money, 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 money. And I really think it's a terrible way to live. I hope to be able to transcend it someday. (laughs) Me too. I'm just like, I hope the more that I talk about it, the more that I'm able to just ascend to this plane where I'm not so worried about it all the time. But it's so interesting that you mentioned that in terms of, you know, having a second child. How is this different from the first time around? We were planning Julian. We had a window of time where I didn't know if Sweet Bitter was going to become a television show and I had just finished touring and I was turning 35 and for various reasons that are very complex and simple, I was just ready. We decided to try to have him and I've written elsewhere about my fertility issues. I um, only have one fallopian tube. I ovulate every other month. I had been told it would be really difficult. So we were giving ourselves like a year cut to Julian being 10 months old and I'm just pregnant. (laughs) And we had been so careful not to get pregnant. And she was due on the day that my, that Stray was originally coming out. It just couldn't, it was literally the worst time humanly possible. And my baby still felt like baby. And I didn't really feel like, I still don't feel like I have my footing as a mother yet. I wasn't even so gung-ho about having two kids. We just were finally reaching a sort of like plateau of, we might be able to handle this one child. And so it rocked my world. It was the beginning of what I'm seeing now as a series of events that just reminded me that I am not in control, that all of the spinning and planning and strategizing that I'm constantly doing about the future is completely irrelevant. And then, of course, now we're in the middle of a pandemic where we get reminded of that every single day. 
Totally. I know. It's like we're all going through this together as if our own individual life lessons weren't enough. Now we have on a global scale something to really remind us. But I think it's really interesting that your book is still coming out in this moment. And I read Stray and I absolutely loved it. I couldn't put it down. It reminded me of how I felt when I was reading Sweet Bitter. I was just so engrossed in Sweet Bitter. And, you know, I loved how personal Stray felt. And there were so many moments where I felt like you were articulating feelings that I never really had words for. And you also mentioned talking about things in the book that you have only spoken about with other people and most of them you were paying to talk to. So how did you go from this point where most people didn't know these things about you to then deciding to write a memoir and making these stories public? That was a slow journey full of denial and self-delusion. I wrote a piece for Vogue magazine and I told myself that I was just going to write this essay because it was coming so quickly and it felt really urgent and hot and fevery. And I know enough about writing that I know that I should be following my obsessions. I should be following that frenzied feeling, at least to see if and when it's going to peter out. And so I agonized over that piece. I almost pulled it twice. And then when it came out, the response was so gratifying and not gratifying in an egocentric way, but gratifying because it seemed that people really wanted to talk about these things and that I could write something that could be a part of a conversation in a much different way than Sweet Bitter. Sweet Bitter is a novel and it's a created world and it stands by itself. But this was me and my lived experience and in a way what every day of my entire life had been leading towards that I might be able to contribute, even though for years I'd been telling myself that I hadn't learned anything. I was such a mess. I was the worst example of an adult child of an alcoholic. I was a textbook case. That was starting to shift. And so I spent about two years writing about my parents, writing about being back in California, never taking it seriously. Telling Knopf I was giving them a novel, telling my agent, oh, the novel's coming along so well, I'm still researching. And then after two years, I wrote a piece for the Sewanee Review called Engrams California. And that was the first time I tied my interest in the landscape here in Los Angeles, in Southern California, my interest in the history of California, and the hurt I suffered from my parents. Once those two were married, I was like, okay, given, this is a book. Um, as far as how personal it is, how raw it is, how vulnerable it leaves me. I'm still dealing with that. I deal with it every time I talk to someone about the book. Every time I give the book to my in-laws or my midwife and I think, wow, you're going to know too much about me. Um, <laughs> but I know if I put something in that book, I did it because it was important. 
there's a lot I left out that there wasn't space for. Like those were conscious writerly choices. And so I have to respect those. Yeah. And, you know, I really felt that while I was reading this because it did feel different from other memoirs that I had read that felt really linear. And this one felt like you were really going in specific places places and you zoomed in into these vignettes about your life. And I love that because they were so filled out and so detailed. And one of them that really stuck out to me was this moment where you talk about one of your best friends, Carly. She had just had a baby and you got married around the same time and you were both in your 20s. And you talk about feeling like you had gotten life right. And then your life changed and you went through a divorce and you were working as a server and then you moved back to L.A. And then you found yourself living alone for the first time at 31. And I know a lot of listeners of this podcast and myself included have felt pressured to be married or have a baby and live this specific life on a linear path. Can you talk about what it's been like for you to kind of stray from that path and stray from that feeling of, I got this right. (laughs) I'm happy to talk about that because I think it's really important. I think that it's very easy in retrospect to look at the risks that you've taken, the choices you've made and say, of course I should have done that. Of course I should have left my husband and my job managing restaurants and helping him open restaurants. And I should have left that identity and gone back to graduate school and written Sweet Bitter because Sweet Bitter did well. And now I'm a writer and I'm married to someone else. It's all so obvious. And what I really try to honor in my life is just how close I was to failing the whole time and how scary it was and how lonely it was. And it was full of drinking and drugs and self-hatred and failed attempts at relationships. And this was all before the period of time that I'm writing about in Stray. I mean, it really unglued me. And all I had was Sweet Bitter. So that's great focus for writing a novel. But I felt like I had regressed. I remember going to weddings And when I turned 30, right, I'm freshly divorced and feeling like a joke almost that I had turned down the career, that I was waiting tables. I would tell people I was working on a novel, but like that might be one of the most embarrassing things to say when you're unpublished. (laughs) Like, oh, I'm working on a novel. Like, don't ever say that. The looks that you receive back will scar you. And it, did turn a corner, right? That story did not turn out to be the story of someone that continued waiting tables, but it was so close. And everything that happened was sweet, bitter. Yes, I worked extremely hard and I thought that the manuscript was good, but so much of it is just timing and luck and was completely out of my control. So as far as straying goes, I've made those choices again and again in my life. And I think the instability of my childhood 
lets me do that. I'm always prepared to burn the bridge, burn everything down, blow it up and start over. And I think the challenge for me as I get older and enter a new phase of life is how to stay. Not how to stray, is that's my impulse. That's where I am most comfortable. But how do I stay here with my discomfort, with my boredom, with my self-destruction? And how do I sit with it and live with it and not press the eject button every time I'm uncomfortable? Wow, that's really powerful. I feel like for many of us, the older that we get, it almost feels more radical to stay than to be trying to do five different things or to be running away or, you know, grasping for all of these different things, but to be really dedicated and stay with something that means something to us. I feel that myself. I feel like that becomes the more radical choice. And for me right now, it's around marriage. Mm. You know, I've felt really hesitant over the years to commit and I'm 31 now and for the first time ever it feels so radical to say that you know I want to marry the person that I'm with and to really truly feel that and to not dip into that impulse that I used to have before to just constantly be running away and as you said blow things up and break things apart well congratulations that is a really beautiful sentiment. And I think that when I say that the impulse to stray versus the impulse to stay, it's never just one, right? The impulse to leave is often alerting us to something within ourselves that we need to deal with. Again, it doesn't mean that you need to book a plane ticket and which we just did last year because I still am this person. Um, But, um, and it doesn't mean that you need to have an affair, but it is often your intuition and your instincts. And I think that I was very similar to you in that I never wanted to get married my entire life and never fantasized about a wedding. I didn't think that that was for me. It didn't seem to suit my personality. And all I could think about when I did think about it was how I would hurt people or how I would get hurt I really didn't see any of the joy that was possible. And that's the way I felt about being a mother. And it's gradual. Not, you know, one thing didn't happen that allowed me to do those things. Um, It is more about listening to yourself and hearing that voice that is like, I could do this. I might be strong enough to do this and continuing to feed it, not taking action, but listening and saying, oh, there's something in me that says that I might want to be a mother. That doesn't mean I need to go get pregnant tomorrow. That's strain. That's the like, that's the eject button. It means that I should listen to it for a few years and see if there are things that I can do to help it grow. And it's similar with marriage. Marriage is a lot, a lot more fun, you know, many ways. So you should do that first. That 
makes me really excited. And it also makes me think about the moment in Stray where you talk about the proposal from your ex-husband and how it felt. And you describe it as feeling shock, then dread, then hope in that order. And I was so struck when I read that because it felt so honest because in today's proposal culture, especially, we often either see a enthusiastic yes or a really awkward no scenario. And so I'm curious how you view that reaction now in retrospect, like what that means to you now. I was 26. I did not want to get married. When I met my husband when I was 22, he thought it was like very cute and bohemian that I was against marriage. I'm using air quotes. I was like, I don't believe in marriage. It's a corrupt institution. I don't want kids. I'm going to be a writer. So at 22, he was a bit older. I think he found it very um, bohemian. And then by the time I was 26 and we'd been together, he wanted what he wanted. It was very important to him. The shock, which is interesting to me now, the shock is that he didn't listen to me. And I wouldn't have been able to articulate that at 26 years old. I would have never said, huh, this man really doesn't listen to what you say. Instead, I was like, oh, I'm surprised. This is what it feels like to be proposed to. Everyone's surprised. The dread was that we couldn't undo it. Once you go through that moment, there was really no turning back. Again, at the time I would have thought, oh, that's what everyone feels because it's such a big, important decision. Looking back, I knew in that moment that I had to manage it and that I was going to get married because I didn't care enough. I loved him so much that of course I would say yes. And I, did, I didn't care enough about myself to say no. Once someone proposes to you, they're really, you can't, you can't say, let's revisit this in four years. And the hope was, wow, this was really unexpected. Maybe there is a life for me that I didn't anticipate. Maybe I can do it. Why not me? Maybe, maybe this will turn out all right. What's funny about that marriage is that it seemed, first of all, we were together for a long time, from for seven years, and it was a really good relationship. We were happy, and we had a good sex life, and we had similar values and similar goals. And when I left him, everyone was searching for a reason. Is he an alcoholic? You had an affair. Both those things were true, but they had nothing to do with why I was leaving the relationship. And I still have trouble pointing to one thing and articulating what it was that made me put him through that and myself through that, that I just knew that I didn't want to be married to him anymore. Yeah, that was a really powerful part of the book, you know, when you were in the bathtub and you were reflecting on the moment where he gave you a glass of water and then fast forwarding and the apartment being packed up and you not knowing exactly why you asked for the divorce. But I feel like we've all been in situations like that. It's like we're being 
pulled towards something and we don't really know what it is, but we just know that we have to do it and we don't really have words or an answer for it. And I think it's not very satisfying when you're writing or when you're talking on a a podcast to say, I didn't know I had this feeling of being led because it sounds mystical and there's nothing practical or applicable about just knowing something. But I think that is oftentimes the case. And then later on, we say, oh, I was young and I really wanted to be a writer and he was an alcoholic and I had an affair and was in love with someone else. Like those things come later. Yeah. And I also think that it just made the book feel more honest, too. You weren't trying to force answers to come. And I really appreciated that, you know, because it felt like you were just leading us where you are now. And I love that. And a lot of times you just don't have answers for everything. But the picture you painted gives so much. And one of the things that I really loved reading about in the book was your relationship with your parents. It was just so much insight for me and also incredibly heartbreaking at moments to read about. And both of your parents are addicts. And there's one point where you write, it's through boundaries that we construct ourselves. Here is where you end and I begin. What do boundaries look like for you today? The easiest answer to that question is saying no. Anytime that I'm able to say no to something in my professional or social life or within my family construct, that's a huge deal, first of all. And it is a protection of a boundary. It has become easier. The more I have to protect, the easier it is to say no and know what the lines are. And so with children, and I had heard this, but I hadn't experienced it. With Julian being born, it's much easier to say, no, I cannot make time for this. No, I cannot do X, Y, and Z. Those are really simple things. Is it easier to say to my father, no, you cannot come visit me because it still doesn't feel safe to me? That part's not easier. Turning down certain work opportunities is nothing compared to maintaining a boundary that is constantly in flux with all kinds of people that I love. But again, it gets easier the more you practice it. It's a muscle. Yeah. And I really liked how you talked about being permeable. One of the direct quotes from the book is, what is shocking isn't that we have lived through the trauma of our lives. The miracle is that we are still remotely permeable. What do you think is the importance of being permeable? Because I noticed that as you were talking about all of these difficult moments with your parents, there was still a tenderness in the ways that you wrote about them. I think if we lose our permeable We lose our humanity. We lose our ability to have compassion, to empathize, to act for others. I think permeability allows us to love. In the book, I'm struggling with those walls that I've built around myself that are not permeable. 
and I'm in the middle of a new relationship that could be potentially great, but I don't feel that it can penetrate because of how densely guarded I am. And that still happens. For me personally, if I do not retain some openness, I will not be able to write. I will not be able to love. I will not be able to mother. And so you're constantly assessing risk. How safe am I right now? A lot of it is involuntary. In the case of my parents, I can't help but have compassion for them. I can't hate them. I've actually never successfully hated anyone in my life, but I I feel like to shut yourself off in that way, it would definitely be the end of making art. And it would be the end of all of the joy that comes from loving. And so I do work hard to stay open. I'm not a great communicator naturally, especially in a relationship. And so it's not comfortable all the time. Becoming a mother wasn't comfortable because of how vulnerable I felt. And it's one of my jobs in this lifetime to remain open. When I think of this permeability and boundaries, I often feel like boundaries are viewed as this very rigid thing. And if you set a boundary, someone's cut out of your life forever, but often interactions are still happening, but they're within these set guidelines. And in the book, you mention the personal pain of visiting your mom, but seeing the joy that she got out of spending time with her grandchild, your son. And so how do you navigate those experiences where you're feeling, I would imagine, so many things in one moment? I think that's really accurate that we tend to think of boundaries as you're not in my life anymore. It's like that ideal breakup situation where you just block the person completely and then they cease magically cease to exist. I think a lot of us hope that letting go of people or cutting people out of our lives is going to feel like that. And that has never been the case for me. It's always very blurry. It's constantly being negotiated. I make mistakes all the time. As far as continuing to visit my mother, I do feel a lot of conflicting things. You know, she is in the same condition, if not worse currently, that she was when I was writing about it in Stray. And it's heartbreaking. It's never okay to see her. And it's because I love her and I want a different life for her. I want, can't even talk about this, I'm gonna start crying, but it's because I'm pregnant. Like I want a different kind of grandparenthood for her. And I can see how if she had made some different decisions or if she didn't have her aneurysm, that we could have reconciled in a meaningful way and met each other as adults and I can see the relationship she could have had with Julian. And so that's not the case. And I'm confronted with that every time we bring him down to Long Beach to see her. So I'm left with what is the case? What options do I have within me that don't require magical thinking or fantasizing or longing for something to be different? 
and this is what I have, which is to bring him to her, to let her watch him grow and that he knows her. And that's it. That's all that I get. So I try to accept that and make the most of it. Do you feel grief around your relationships with your mother and your father? Absolutely. It's ongoing. And grieving the living, which is what I write in the book, is a hard state to take seriously in a lot of ways because real grief, the loss of someone who has passed away, is so total that to use the same word for people that are still living, it feels a little disingenuous. But I do think that there are different kinds of grief. And this is one of them in which things will not be different, especially in regards to my mother, and most likely in regards to my father. And so I've lost them. And I felt that acutely in 2005, when she had her aneurysm, and his life unraveled due to crystal meth and he ended up not really ever recovering from that I felt well I don't have parents anymore and you know my Julian sees my mother once a month but he doesn't have grandparents and there will be no reconciliation between all of us and it is it's an ongoing sadness I think that we do read a lot of memoirs about the loss of a parent. And yet this is very common to be estranged, to be separated within life with no hope of bridging that gap, but everyone is still technically alive. And yeah, it's a, it's a heartbreaking, heartbreaking situation. It's also just what a lot of people are living with. Yeah. And it's so interesting because now in this current moment, I feel like grief has come into the larger conversation much more. And I lost a parent when I was young. My dad died when I was a teenager. And so I've worked through a lot of my feelings of grief. And it's been really interesting to now watch it come into mainstream conversation where articles are being written about it and grief is being felt and expressed around so many different things. And I think this in particular is really powerful, you know, grieving the living and how you say that it ends in regular grieving because eventually, you know, someone's going to die. And that was such a moment where I was like, I have never thought about this before, but it is so true. Grieving the living does end in just regular grieving. And that closeness to death, it can feel really scary when you have that recognition. Yes, it's terrifying. I mean, all of us, I think so much of our grief is about the fear we have around talking about death or how little we've normalized death within our society. Like, I do think there are ways, I don't know them, but (laughs) there are ways to look at death as a natural part of life and to, if not welcome it, at least make space for it and the conversations that it provides and 
Carly from the book is training right now to become a death doula and she's on another plane. She just has like another, she's in touch with parts of herself and with her spirituality in a way that I will never, ever, ever achieve. But I'm very lucky to be close to her and to watch the work that she continuously does. I think as a culture right now, so much of our anxiety and our grief have to do with unresolved feelings of death. And we, yes, it's being talked about more because we're going through a collective experience that everyone has to acknowledge. But I don't know if the paradigms are actually shifting. I feel like in our world, right, you run this podcast that deals with transformation and you ask questions like this and I write about this stuff so I guess we're inside of a bubble but I feel like for our culture at large there's still we're all so stunted when it comes to death yeah yeah it will be interesting to see how we move through this moment and what reveals itself afterwards I know. I keep thinking it's a lesson, but I don't know of what. I know. I know. It it remains to be seen. Doesn't necessarily mean it's a good lesson. I know. I'm like, (laughs) the answer is TBD. We'll see what happens. You know, reading the book, one thing that just came up for me, you talk about all of these different relationships in your life. And one of the most constant threads of relationships was your friendships. You talk about having these friendships all throughout the book. How have your friends been there for you in your different life moments? How have they carried you? I would be nothing, absolutely nothing without my friend family. And the four that figure into Stray are still the most prominent people in my life. Of course, there are a few others, but I do think that both of my books are really interested in the family that you create in the absence of family. And I was drawn to restaurant work because of the familial structure. And I was always seeking maternal figures and paternal figures and mentors and in my personal life with my friends, we seem to have crossed beyond conditional love with each other. I hear about friendships ending and I have lots of friendships that have ended, but not my real friendships. I actually can't imagine that. That isn't to say that they stay at the same volume and tenor and intimacy all the time. They ebb and flow But I do think in the case of Carly and Alex, who are my two best friends and figure in the book, we all went through loss in our 20s. Carly lost her mom at 25. Alex lost both of her parents in quick succession at 27 and 29. And you know the story of my parents who are both magically still alive. And I... feel that going through those things together have really taken us out of the sort of the petty parts of friendship. That doesn't mean that it's not hard as people have kids and people don't have kids and everyone's lives are busy and we often haven't lived in the same city, all of us, but I have such a tendency to isolate and to run and these people have held me accountable. And of course, 
she's not my friend, but that starts with my sister, who I really feel that the reason I haven't become a drug addict or to be frank, killed myself somewhere along the line, either accidentally or on purpose, is because of this bond that I have with her. Like it holds me to the ground. And so when I look at in Stray, why I am not like my parents, the first thing that comes to mind are these relationships. Wow. That is so powerful. And, you know, I feel really similarly about my friends. I feel like the friends that I have in my life who I feel that you're not going anywhere feeling with, they were my very first lessons in learning how to stay with someone and really like go through these different life moments, these different volumes and tenors with people who have completely different personalities, who have different lives, who live in different parts of the country now that I'm at this point in my life. And um, yeah, thank you so much for sharing that. Yeah, of course. And they will, it keeps growing and no one will ever know you like that. I've made so many incredible writer friends and so many adult friends and I have mom friends and I treasure them. I can't say that any of them actually know me, that they've seen all the ugliness that I'm capable of and all of the beauty that I'm capable of creating. It just, it becomes extremely rare as you get older. Okay, we're going to move into some quick steps. What is a small step that your younger self took that you're really proud of now? A lot, actually. I mean, I am proud of myself for moving to New York City, proud of myself for getting a job at Union Square Cafe. It was the best restaurant in New York when I applied to it, and I really didn't think that they would ever hire me. I was grossly underqualified. I am proud of myself for writing Sweet Bitter. I had been talking about writing a book for my entire life. And as I was approaching 30 years old, I was also like, it might might not happen. Like, that's a crazy thing to write a book. That doesn't happen for most people. And I think I've been reflecting on it as Stray comes out. And it's not going to look anything like when Sweet Bitter comes out. Insofar as I will be at home, I've decided to order takeout. So that's the big plan for that night. I will not be, I think like the night Sweet Bitter came out, I mean, I must have had like four bottles of champagne to myself. Different times. (laughs) Totally. There's a way in which you can kind of gloss over your accomplishments or how miraculous it is because what it's daily life. It's like a thousand frustrations and you're busy and you're quarantined with your fucking toddler. Sorry. I don't know if I'm allowed to cuss You're quarantined (laughs) with your toddler and there isn't, you know, space to meditate on the journey that you've been on. Um, I really, I can't believe I wrote a book. Can't believe I wrote two, but I'm very proud of myself for figuring that book out. Yeah, it's a big deal. So what is a small victory from your week? I didn't look at my phone all day on Saturday. Oh my gosh, that is huge. I needed to. I've been doing a lot of press for Stray. And as you can see from when I just cried on 
your podcast five minutes ago, it's, um, it's not light necessarily. And when it came to Saturday to my day to be with Matt and Julian, I thought I have to just leave this phone in its spot in the corner and just be with them all day. And it felt so good. And it is not real life. Like I'm not going to make a regular practice out of it because I can't, it's just not, but it felt amazing. Well, thank you so much for being here today. Where can everyone find you online and where can they find Stray? Stray, you can order anywhere books are sold from one of those big scary websites where people get books to your local indie bookstore, which will either ship it to you or I heard rumors in Los Angeles that bookstores are going to start offering curbside pickup, which would be really a wonderful thing. I am at SM Dandler on Instagram. I don't really know how to use Twitter, but if you need my attention, you can try that as well. That is me. Well, thank you so much. I loved talking to you today and thank you for opening up and for writing this book. It really meant so much to me to read it. Thank you for your beautiful questions. And yeah, it was a pleasure. Stephanie, thank you so much again for sharing your journey with us and for taking time to be here with us today. And thank you to everyone who's listening. On the next episode, Christina and I are going to be reflecting on this conversation that we had today. I'd also love to hear from you. What is your relationship with boundaries like? This is something so many of you requested to hear about on the podcast, so I have a feeling that you have thoughts. If you'd like to share your thoughts, you can email us a voice note at onesteppodcast at gmail.com. All you have to do is open up that voice memos app or the voice record app, record something, and then email it to us, and you might just hear it on the podcast. While you're here, please make sure you subscribe, rate, and review this podcast. You can find One Step on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, and wherever you listen to your podcasts. And be sure to follow us on Instagram at onesteppodcast to stay up to date. Thank you so much to our producer, Christina Cleveland, our sound engineer and editor, Tung Chen, and my studio, my closet in New York City. Take care, everyone, and we'll talk soon.